Blog Talk Radio. as well as the Brown Posey releases A Moment in the Sun and Live from the Cafe. Sexual abuse and assault has been an issue at the forefront of our consciousness for decades, but in recent years there is a stronger backlash against the norm of keeping quiet, victim-blaming and shaming, and keeping it hushed up. With the Me Too movement has come those willing to stand up and speak out, and more support is coming. Jessica Schwartz has compiled a series of accounts for her new book, You Are Not Alone. Jessica, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much, Tori. Well, Jessica, I guess the first question I must ask is kind of a leading one, but what inspired you to collect these stories and write about this issue and also from your personal level? You know, it's a great question and one that, I, that I've definitely gotten since putting together such a book on such a sensitive topic. Um, basically, when the Me Too movement online started in October of 2017, I think it was evident that a lot of people were shocked by the sheer number of people they knew um, who put Me Too on their timeline and their news feeds, and people were surprised to know that so many people had been affected by sexual assault, abuse, and harassment. And the thing is, is that it shouldn't be surprising. The the numbers are staggering. Something like 90% of women have reported um, sexual assault, harassment, or abuse. Um, many men have actually dealt with it as well, but they're, they report about it far less. And it really became a topic that, even though it wasn't something I had written about a lot in the past, I do have a fairly long history of writing about sensitive topics. I have an incredibly deep-seated belief that the more we talk about difficult subjects, the less difficult they become to talk about and that we have to talk about things that people consider taboo or sensitive so that it continues to be brought to light and so that people's stories are heard. And at the time, um, I had been a full-time freelance writer for a, uh, maybe a year and a half or so, um, and I had a small platform. I had already self-published my first book, Write, Get Paid, Repeat, which was uh, a guide about freelancing and treating your, your freelance as a business and an entrepreneur opportunity. Um, and so I had a platform. I had the capacity and the ability to put together a book and have it published and know how to do that. And so I believe that as somebody with a platform, albeit somewhat small, um, I have an obligation to try to use my platform to bring things to light and to do good and to let people feel heard. And so putting together You Are Not Alone, I started by just putting a call out on social media and asking people, hey, would you be interested in sharing your story? You can remain anonymous, um, but would you be interested in sharing your story for a book? And I said that everyone can provide me with a fake name 
um, and they can remain anonymous, but I requested that everyone give me their real age and location. And it was really important to me to show that it literally happens to people of any age in any location. Um, and we ended up, I ended up receiving about 55 stories from various uh, people, both men and women shared their stories with mm -hmm. me. And in the book, I have people as young as 14 sharing their stories and as old as 72. Um, mm -hmm. People from all over the world, although mostly in the U.S. because that's where my platform is. I had contributors from Australia and Spain, the United Arab Emirates, um, Scotland and Ireland and Russia. And it, it truly felt like a coming together of people for a common purpose. And, and you know what, it's an incredibly difficult topic for a lot of people to read about with so many people having had uh, since the, that, that happened to them and being part of the Me Too movement and part of a group of people who have been sexually assaulted or harassed. The truth is, is it's a really difficult topic. I've gotten a lot of feedback from people that it's an incredibly important book and something that they feel is necessary, but it was also very difficult for them to read and to get through. Um, and a lot of the feedback has been incredibly positive about bringing these stories to light, about giving people a voice. The contributors especially have felt that they had no one to talk to, and now they feel like their story is being heard. Mm -hmm. now, I want to ask you about the, um, the, the, the wider platform in terms of uh, the other nations, and I, I'm, I'm thinking of a, sort of a related subject. Um, one thing I must ask uh, is – uh, firstly, how did you decide the the running order, which stories would, would go in, which ones would not? Was there any kind <laughs> of criteria that you used? Um, so for the order, there was definitely a lot of criteria. For people, whether or not they would be included there, uh, I basically across the board accepted um, all stories. If somebody felt strongly enough to share their story and something had happened to them, I did include it. The, the, there was only two exceptions that I had of people who submitted stories and I could not include them. And it was either, um, a, I think in one case, it was a situation where it wasn't sexual, it wasn't sexually related. There was a harassment issue, but it wasn't sexually related. And that's really what the book was focused on. And the person absolutely understood. And another mm -hmm. one was a case where um, it just didn't fit. It didn't, this, it wasn't about sexual assault or harassment in any way, um, though they did have a very personal story and it just didn't fit with the overall topic. Um, but if anyone submitted stories of sexual assault or abuse or harassment, I included it. It's not my place to say that something is too graphic or too violent or not violent enough to be included. Harassment is still bad. Whether or not somebody is shamed for life or deeply affected over long term doesn't make it okay. So there are lighter stories and then there are far more graphic ones. Um, and then when it came to the order, so the logistics is really interesting. So I'm a professional uh, writer, editor, and book coach. So I do actually edit manuscripts for a living. Um, mm -hmm. It's a big part of my business. So I went into this, I tried to stay really technical, <laughs> um, which is very difficult to do in these types of stories. But what I did was I started by, uh, I edited every story. And then, um, and I didn't edit for content. I want to be very clear about that. I did not change the story in any way. I did, in many cases, take out names of large companies or take or change the names of perpetrators with permission, um, and that was more of a liability issue, right. um, which I did 
speak with each contributor as I receive their stories. I would let them know, hey, I'm going to change this to an initial or I'm going to take out the name of your company. Um, and that was more to not just protect myself, but to protect the storyteller. I didn't want anyone to be too recognizable. And I also didn't want there to be any sort of liability attached to it. Um, mm -hmm. So I started with word count. And then I went into the actual uh, story itself, what the content was. So on a logistical, from like a technical perspective, when you're reading these types of stories, it would be mm -hmm. really difficult. It would be even more difficult to read it if it was like a 3,000 word story followed by a 5,000 word story, and they're both intensely graphic. Yes. So, so I started by kind of categorizing them and finding like, okay, well, here's a slightly lighter story. Here's a slightly more heavier story and making sure that I had, um, if this story is only 300 words and this story, 6,000 words, I would rather be able to alternate between the shorter and the longer to make it easier for people to get through. And then I also um, paid attention to, I had out of the 56 stories, nine of them were from men and about 15 of them were from international locations. So I also tried to vary if one story was from Arizona, the next story might've been from Spain or Russia um, or mm -hmm. Florida, you know, just not. So I was trying to vary location uh, as well as age. So it did take some time, <laughs> but that's part of, that's part of doing it. And then, and then I sent my manuscript once it was complete, I sent it to my own professional editors. Um, as an editor myself, uh, I can't be the final look through of a book that I'm putting together. So Very I sent true. it out to a professional editor. And then um, I actually designed the cover myself. I have a cover designer I work with who is incredible. And um, I kind of gave him an idea of what I wanted, and he was able to really put it together perfectly. And I was very nitpicky about it. It was really important to me. I wanted it to be uh, stark, almost, almost aggressive, like striking to the point where it was almost, almost aggressive. And so mm -hmm. uh, the face on the cover is half, uh, half of it's a male face, half of it's a female face. Um, with the you are not alone across where the eyes would be. So I, I, it was all painstaking. Very, that was very, yeah, and that was that's very, that is very eye-catching, which, of course, from the promotional standpoint, you need, and it was also artistically well done. I certainly thought it was, I thought it was done with taste, but it was also done in the same way of you need, people need to look at this, people need to see it. And also, uh, what you were just talking about with the editing process, this is very instructive for all of us. Uh, the, uh, the, you know, the, the difficult parts with the words and how they're used and also the changes you had to make to protect yourself, this is all part of the writing process a lot of folks don't understand. Absolutely. Especially, now this is um, an extra layer to the writing process. Because I didn't physically write most of the content, um, mm -hmm. I had to be extremely careful uh, about, but a big part of it, it's not just liability for me because first of all, I don't really think that anybody would be coming after me individually, even though by putting this book together, I did understand that I was putting myself in a position where I was almost allowing myself to be representative of these stories. And I'm fine with that. Um, in fact, I, it, at least I have the capacity to do so. Like I'm comfortable talking about these subjects because I know how important it is, despite the uncomfortable topic. Um, it's really important to me to talk about difficult subjects. In my own personal blogging and writing and books, I've talked about my struggles with generalized anxiety disorder and how my anxiety affected my entrepreneurship path. I've spoken about my experiences with infertility. Um, 
my experiences with the Me Too movement, it's extremely important to me to talk about these difficult subjects, but that doesn't give me license to expose others who have trusted me with their, mm -hmm. with their stories. And so it was less important to me about my personal liability and more important to me to protect the contributors from being identified. And that was really what was most important to me. Now, Jessica, have, have you had the opportunity to meet any of these people, or did you know any of them personally beforehand? Actually, it's been incredible. Um, I, a couple of the people in the book I did know beforehand. They reached out to me privately and said, hey, I do have a story I'd like to be included. People that I knew um, from my past, whether that's high school, college, previous jobs that I've worked at that I've been that I've connected to on LinkedIn and Facebook, um, most of them are strangers to me or were strangers to me. And some of them I've become close with. I, a couple of the contributors have become friends of mine. Um, none, almost none of them live locally. I live in New York City. Um, but I had people, I've met people out of California and Florida, uh, the young woman in Spain I stay in contact with. I try to, um, I, I really wanted to be a sounding board. So one thing that I took very carefully, one, one thing I took care in doing was, uh, especially when younger people would send me stories, I would make sure that I emailed them back and had a conversation with them. It wasn't just, thanks for your story, have a great life. It was right, more, right. thank you for sharing your story. Are you okay? Have you talked to anyone? Um, in a couple of cases, it was like encouraging them to speak to their parents or speak to the police if it was, uh, you know, if they hadn't or if they expressed to me that they hadn't or were scared to. I just wanted to make myself uh, a place where people could feel comfortable sharing and talking because a lot of these, especially these younger girls, don't have someone to talk to about it or they That's feel true, like it's yeah. their fault or that they'll be blamed. Um, and, and it's really, really, like, I, it was very important to me to at least try to be a place where these people could feel like they could speak to someone in a very judgment-free zone. There was absolutely no judgment happening on my end to anyone. Um, and it was incredibly important to me to feel like they could talk if they needed to. So I have had some of the contributors reach out to me just to talk um, and just to talk about their feelings or tell me what's happened since their story happened. Um, and it's, I'm just incredibly grateful that I could be a person that, that someone felt that they could speak to about that. I may wish to come back to asking you about some of the, uh, the afters with regards to uh, some of these stories. We're speaking with Jessica Schwartz, the author of You Are Not Alone, and it's a collection of stories of, of people from all over the world and of different age groups, male and female, talking about uh, their issues, uh, the experiences of sexual abuse. And Jessica, several of these stories are indeed graphic, and maybe we've already gone over this, but it would seem that uh, the stories do not feel designed to shock, although we know that they will. Um, for those who are listening or who have just joined us at this time, Jessica Schwartz is my guest on the Brown Posey Press Show, and she is the author of a new book on the Brown Posey imprint, You Are Not Alone. Uh, the call uh, from Brooklyn, New York has just dropped, and hopefully uh, Jessica will be calling back in. So while we are waiting for her, uh, I'll go over a little of what we have here. Some of the stories uh, with regards to uh, coming out of the Me Too movement, coming out of 
the once again the focus of sexual abuse and sexual assault and the way that people have been dealt with and that the way people are struggling with this and coming out of it as well um, there is a, a series of stories People from all over the world, as Jessica had said earlier, uh, people from the United States, people from other countries such as Spain and Russia, she has pointed out, people as young as 14 and as old as 72 were involved uh, in this story, and I believe Jessica is back. Uh, Jessica, welcome back to the show. I am so sorry. My phone just cut off. These things happen. It's okay. I've uh, I've covered, I think, for you, <laughs> so uh, not to worry. <laughs> I um, wanted to get to the next question about uh, You Are Not Alone. I was just giving a recap as you were calling back in. Um, several of the stories with regards to You Are Not Alone were graphic in detail. Uh, they do not feel like – I didn't feel, as, as you said, you didn't change anything with regards to what they wrote, I don't think. Um, they didn't Correct. feel designed to shock in any way, but I think – Quite honestly, they're going to just by the natural writing of them. Absolutely. Um, yeah, but it, it almost feels like you're reading someone's diary. You know, the the way that they tell their story, and sometimes it's incredibly graphic with every detail, and it makes you cringe, and it makes you scared, and, and it's graphic in nature. And sometimes they gloss over the details and talk about their feelings and and the results of it and how they feel now and how they're trying to heal. And one of the best compliments I've ever gotten is one of the reviews that was left on Amazon was that they felt that there was a an overlying an overarching um, feeling of hope and and people healing as a message, which which is something that I couldn't have I couldn't have planned for that I couldn't have designed for it, um, but that I'm glad people are picking up because so many of the people who shared these stories have have moved in their lives to have a successful life and be happy and try to get over it, even though it's not something you can just get over. It's not something that you can say, Oh, get over it. It happened 20 years ago. Move on with your life. And that's, that's not realistic. I mean, something like this affects you for the rest of your life. And, and that's why we have to talk about it more. It's why we have to tell these stories because so many people who have not been assaulted or who have been perpetrators of assault don't understand that. They don't understand the gravity. They don't understand the effects. Yeah. Now, I noticed, Jessica, you began with your own story. How difficult was you was it for you to write that one? Not at all. Wow. I had shared before. Um, for me, I think, and one of, I think one of the biggest criticisms I've received from this book and something that I was very aware I would probably receive for putting together this book is um, I've had some people tell me, well, you've never been raped. Why are you writing this book? Why should we listen to you? And it's, it's a fair question. It is. It absolutely is. I understand why people would ask that, why that would be a question that exists. And I think part of it is um, I'm able to step back a little bit and put on, like, my writer hat and, um, and compartmentalize the emotions to be able to write it effectively without – um, being too overly emotional about the content and being able to put it together in as much of a technical and logistical way as I was able to um, in terms of like ordering it and editing it and, and being able to put aside my personal feelings to be able to do that effectively. Um, but sharing my own experiences, I, I didn't find it personally difficult because 
I've shared it before, you know, my, I've been with my husband for almost a decade and it's something that I shared with him, um, you know, when we were dating and we mm-hmm. live in New York city. So I would need to get on the train if we were out on a date and it was late at night and I needed to go home. Um, you know, I would need to get on a train and then walk eight blocks home at one in the morning by myself. And so it was something that I clearly remember having that conversation with him of why that made me feel uncomfortable and why that was something that I had to pay attention to and maybe why I didn't want to stay out later or why I was uncomfortable with it. And I remember sharing these stories with him and telling him, like, you don't understand being a woman and the fear of being physically taken advantage of really carries on and, and affects um, every, a lot of decisions that women make every single day, what we wear, where we go, how late we stay out, how we get home. You know, a lot of women mm-hmm. are paying extra to, to take cars home instead of taking the train or public transportation because that's more dangerous. You know, women mm-hmm. are taught how to hold their keys with the keys sticking out in between your fingers just in case when you're in a parking garage or walking late at night. You know, we're very mm-hmm. aware if there are men behind us on the sidewalk when we're walking somewhere in the dark. Um, and that's something that a lot of men don't even realize is something that we think about because it's not something that they think about. And so I have tried to be very open about that and tried to be very open about uh, those decisions and things that affect those decisions because I just want to open the eyes of the people around me, not, not in a luxury way, but in a very unfortunately common way that we have to think mm-hmm. about things that a lot of men simply don't have the experience in thinking about so it doesn't occur to them. Well, as I had said to you earlier, I wanted to touch on this story because some of these stories do involve men. Uh, Ryan's story in particular is not uncommon uh, considering when it occurred to him and uh, also that now that this is in the out at the forefront a little bit more, it, it becomes even less co- uncommon, which is unfortunate. Mm-hmm. That's absolutely true. And, you know, Ryan's story was interesting because he did not want to share his story. He had no desire to. Um, He explicitly states in the opening of his story how, you know, in the era of Me Too, many are being forced out of not me. Um, He says how at the age of 35, I'm now being forced to face my own rape, which took place when I was 14 because I was living in the not me bubble. He'd he'd suppress it. He'd pushed it down. He never wanted to talk about it. And with the wake Mm -hmm. of the Me Too movement, it became too much. He couldn't deny it anymore. And he had to tell his story and it's, and he had to relive it and deal with it now as, as an adult 20 years later. Um, which is just as terrifying. I mean, if you've suppressed it for that long and tried to just compartmentalize it for that long and all of a sudden it comes up, it's as, it's as if it was happening all over again because for the first time you're trying to actually deal with it. And that's the thing that, uh, you know, here in Pennsylvania where I live and working in journalism, I have had to look at some of the uh, the grand jury reports with regards to sexual abuse in the Catholic diocese here. There was one specifically for the Altoona Johnstown diocese a couple of years back, and then there was a larger one for six more, which included Philadelphia and Harrisburg. And uh, needless to say, I had to wade through quite a bit of that, not because I wanted to, but it was part of my job. And the stories included accounts from people who had come forward decades after the fact and so many of them both male and female admitting that they were still carrying this that they were still dealing with this and 
in the case of the church now, you know, and of course I, I had lived in Boston for 10 years, and when that scandal broke, um, I, I remember talking to friends of mine. Now, I'm not Catholic, but I talked to friends who are. Many of them, not all of them, but many of them really felt their faith had gotten shaken so badly. And that's yeah. a, and there's a there's that this is something that shakes people right to their core, even if you're not religious. You know, it goes beyond. You know, that. it's it's you know, and that that combines a couple of different major topics. One of which right. being um, the idea of religious suppression and repression of those types of things, and yes. and shaking faith. And the other being the the question that so many people especially older people and especially men tend to ask when someone comes forward after it happened a long time ago. And the first thing they always say is, why did you wait so long to say something? Why didn't you come forward? And um, to address that point, I think there's been a lot of explanation about, oh, there's been a lot of explanation about that. There's been a lot of people who, um, you know, they discuss the fact that they didn't want to be blamed. They didn't want to be shamed. They didn't want to be cast out of their family or cast out of their community or excommunicated in some way. And right. that their fear of being blamed, because what, what do you hear? What do you hear every time a, a victim comes forward when somebody wants to try to refute their story? You hear things like, well, what were you wearing? Were you drinking? Yep. Um, yep. I could be stark naked drunk on the street and that does not invite any sort of rape or forcible assault. The reality is that we have to remember that young people, men and women, um, have bodily autonomy. And it's, you know, it's incredibly timely that it's all happening now, obviously, with everything going on with the hot button issues of um, abortion and everything happening in the state legislations right now. The reality mm -hmm. is, is that bodily autonomy should be an unequivocal right um, and not a privilege. And mm -hmm. But the the further we try to regulate people's health care and access to health care and restrict things that they can and cannot do in terms of medically, the more we're just saying, we don't believe that you have the right to make your own decisions. And the more we're saying that your body is not your own. And we're perpetuating yeah. this cycle of if your body is not your own, then I can do whatever I want with it. And there's nothing you can do about it. But in terms of religious suppression, that's a very real uh, theme in this book as well and a very real thing that I heard from many of the contributors. My family were, was conservative. They wouldn't have believed me. My family was religious. Mm -hmm. They wouldn't have accepted me because I, was, because I wasn't pure anymore. Yeah, and to sort of go along with that, that's, that's just perpetuating the denial. Uh, exactly. When, when we, and what we have, a lot of these legislative actions that are being done in Georgia as as for one, Missouri for another, and they're trying something similar in Pennsylvania. I think mm -hmm. a lot of the legislators realize and a lot of those who are pushing for it realize that most of these are not going to stick around very long and are going to be are going to be struck down. I think they are seeing it as a test case for Roe v. Wade with a more conservative Supreme Court. They think they have a chance to actually overturn it, so this is why they try to push these buttons now. Yes, but as you that's say, exactly yes. why. But yes, it's also it's also the continual of denial, and that leads me to another question. Um, since I'm sensitive to this issue myself, uh, one of the things that bothers me and has always bothered me is the denial that a lot of men are in, regardless of who they are or where, what's, what they're 
station is in life, it doesn't matter. Regarding to the abuse, um, is it, it, it just remains hard to change the attitudes of men, doesn't it? It does. And it, it, it sucks because I don't like having to say, oh, it's men. I don't like having to generalize right. that way because there are men who have been affected as well. And there are men who are in, you know, whether we want to call it enlightened or they understand the issue or they uh, sympathize and empathize with the issue. But the reality is that um, it is mostly men and or very conservative, uh, whether that is religious or, or political conservativeness, um, who are perpetuating that. Um, mm-hmm. When you look at the people trying to push through uh, abortion and, and reproductive health care rights, it's typically older men. Um, yep. people, and, and many of them have been accused of these things, and yet we still have them in office. And until we get to a point where it is unacceptable, and we, as a nation, we will not accept these people as our leaders, and we will not vote them into office, it's going to continue. Um, half the country believes that abortion is murder, and, you know, it's, you can't, you can't legislate, like, you can't, talk someone out of that when it because when it's a religious belief when it's a deep held long held relief you can't talk people out of that what you can do is just like in the Kavanaugh hearings um you can continue to bring these stories to light you can continue to um try to make them understand and empathize um but like look at what was happening when Roy Moore was very almost reelected Yes. And how horrifying is that as a country that we that there are voters who are okay with what he's being accused of and that there's yeah. evidence of it. I mean, we have to look at this as a people. Um, we the people, we have to look at it as not just a political issue, but we are allowing this cycle to continue because we continue to vote into office people who believe these things. And so it is absolutely a vicious cycle. Um, but it's also but it's not about abortion and reproductive rights only. It's, it's, it all comes back to bodily autonomy and consent. And, yeah. you know, just like the ERA hasn't been ratified yet because people, for some reason, don't want to say that women are just as equal as men. It's, it's just another symptom of a larger problem. And as the, the issue, uh, I think a lot of it is the issue of change. And it always seems to come down to me to be the fear of change. There's this absolute fear that you're going to that men are some men anyway are going to lose something that they think is theirs when in reality they are not losing anything at all. I don't right. Think. It, it comes down to the fact that no one's asking men to give up anything. We're not asking you to give up your place at the table. We're asking to have extra chairs added to the table. And I think that that's really the mindset that people get lost in is, oh, well, if women get to have this, then I get to have less of it. And that's really living in a mindset of scarcity. That's really assuming that equality means that you have less of something just because somebody else has more. And, I mean, the world is not equal. There are a lot of people who go hungry, who don't have clean water. There are a lot of people who don't have power in their life and autonomy in their life. Um, And it's absolutely ludicrous to to say that we can't deny that that's the case. That's just reality. Um, and it's, it sucks. It absolutely sucks. It, it, I, I don't think that there needs to be income equality everywhere. That's not something that is really possible. Um, but there needs to be an acknowledgement that some people have and some people have not. Mm-hmm. And that's just Very reality. True. 
And it's true mm-hmm. in politics. It's true in religion. It's true in families. Um, and I personally, I think that when we get to the fundamentalists and the extremists in any religion, I think that there are extremes in every situation, and it's the extremes we have to watch out for. That is very true. And one of the other things about change, I mean, in our lives, I think every one of us can admit, if not openly to ourselves, there's things we wished we'd never said in our lives. There's things we wished we'd never done in our lives, and I'm one of them. Absolutely. No I, one's can, I can look, yeah, and I can look back at certain things and think, you know, when you know when I said something I shouldn't have said, or when I did something to someone that I knew was wrong, and yeah, but those situations are learning opportunities. It's all about precisely. learning opportunities. Like I, I, you know, in entrepreneurship and in business and in life and in relationships, failure is your biggest learning opportunity. Um, doing something that causes hurt to someone else, and understanding and acknowledging that, and being able to move forward as a better person. Or failing at business, failing at something that you tried to do and learning from it and moving forward and doing better next time. It's failure is the single biggest learning opportunity in life. Nobody mm-hmm. is perfect. Nobody has done has led a perfect life or done everything right or been a safe space 100% of the time. That's just not realistic. We're human. We make mistakes. We're flawed. Um, you know, we're emotional. We have issues that our own personal issues affect the way we think about the things around us as, as it should. Um, and it's not about focusing on the failure. It's about, it's not about regrets. Like um, I can, I can honestly say that I live my life without regrets. I truly believe that regrets are meaningless because I can't go back and change the past. I can't go back and change something I've done. All I can do as a human and as a person and as a friend, a wife, a daughter, a friend, you know, a sister, the only thing I can do in my life is learn from it. Um, attempt to make amends and apologize and truly move on in my life a better person who will not make that same mistake twice. Like mistakes are absolutely normal, but it's about not making the same one over and over again. And that's the thing that eventually you hope that it comes to you. And I know I've been through this, you know, with failures and with other things in my life. I, I try to live, I don't have any regrets either because at least I try to find the points in my life where I have said something has to change or exactly. I have to learn from what I have done. And uh, I think it's very human of us to not to resist that change, to be afraid. It, the, the fear of admitting error is such a human thing, isn't it? See, and that's the thing is, like, I think, um, especially being an entrepreneur, I've, I've very quickly had to learn that admitting failure is the only way to move forward. Um, there, if you just suppress it and say, oh, I didn't fail, I'll just, you know, I'll do something different next time, or, oh, I didn't mean that, it was just a joke, or don't be so sensitive, it's, it all comes back to a place of refusing to admit guilt, which is natural. None of it, we all want to come off as best as possible and to be seen as a good person and to feel like we're good people. Um, mm-hmm. And it's easy to blame others and say, oh, you're just too sensitive, you just didn't understand the joke, or, oh, you know, all millennials just need a safe space. Like it's, it's so easy to generalize and try to shift the blame. Um, and, and you only grow as a person when you accept that you have done something wrong. And, and especially in, in larger situations where you have to accept that something you did caused a consequence. For example, um, you know, saying something racist or homophobic or sexist and losing a friend. 
you know, you can't you can't mm-hmm. necessarily fix that. You can't necessarily make amends. All you can do is move forward. But people try to shift the blame. They try to say, oh, it's not my fault. They just didn't understand me or they didn't get the joke or they're too sensitive. And that's ridiculous. It's it's a much, you're, you're a much stronger person for coming back and saying, I'm sorry. I shouldn't mm-hmm. have said that. It was wrong because of X, Y, Z. And I won't say it again and accept the consequences. And people don't want to do that. People don't want to take responsibility and accept the consequences because they don't want to admit that they did it in the first place. Right. Well, there's one thing too. We talked about the Me Too movement earlier and how, how it's spread via Twitter and social media. If there's any, you know, in terms of social media, it has really ripped the mask off a lot of people. And I have often said myself that the only thing good about Facebook or it was that it exposed the dark underside of people they would never have put out there in public or in mixed company. And it all comes back to you don't think before you hit send. And oh, absolutely. So, and I mean, and, and it's 20 like, years well, ago, well, people could say what they wanted to say and it would disappear forever. And now yep. everything's online and it lasts forever. Yeah. And people are chronic overshares. We always want to be the funny person on Twitter. We want to be the person with the perfect yeah. life on Instagram. And, you know, it's interesting. There's actually been studies done that uh, social media usage actually leads to depression in people significantly more often than before social media existed. And it's because we try to put the best version of ourselves online or we try to be the shock person, the shocking person. I mean, remember Howard Stern was the shock jock and now everybody wants to be known for something, whether it's good or bad. And it lives online forever. And in broadcasting, Howard was was Howard was put up to me when I began in college in the early 80s, not because of what he said or did because of how much money he was making. Yeah, the attention, negative or positive, attention is attention. Yeah, and he was a person who I was – I was never a fan of him, but at the same time, I wasn't offended by what he was doing because I understood that he had a platform and he was using it. His sense of humor and his sense of whatever led to that, and he's probably toned it down in recent years, but what it did was it opened the door – to a lot of people deciding that they wanted to be just like him. And I remember losing out a job in Boston to a guy who thought he was the Boston version of Howard Stern. And, well, definitely he had more experience than me, and definitely he was a better fit for that job. But at the same time, I listened to him and thought, you're just aping Howard Stern, We and, and what's the point of that? And then, of course, I worked in satellite radio, so I was around some <laughs> of those folks too. And yeah, it just it just but it's not just that. the shocking. It, it's really yeah. not. It's not just being shocking or saying something shocking. It's um, I I think it's rooted in people. There are people who don't see it as sarcastic, who don't see it as funny, who don't see it for right. what it is as shocking entertainment value, and not necessarily as something that someone truly believes. And mm-hmm. um, they, you know, you have a group of people who are going to think to themselves. This guy's telling it like it is. This guy's saying what I can't say. Um, right. or, or people who deeply believe those things but are afraid to say it. And the truth yep. is, is when you look at how Trump got elected from people saying, oh, well, he's just saying what we all want to say. You know, 
any president in the past who said they were going to grab them by the pussy or they openly admit to sexually assaulting or they cheated on their wife or, you know, as, as horrific as some of the things he said, any president in history would not have been elected for that. But we're in a time right now where we're very divisive and it's become very much an us versus them mentality. And we Precisely. have people that are going further to the left and further to the right to try to be more shocking and to be able to say, like, no, this is this is how it really is. This is how I really feel. And we're seeing a resurgence of not that it ever truly went away of hate crimes, but we're seeing people proud of them. We're seeing people who are openly admitting to being homophobic or sexist or racist. And it's horrifying. It's absolutely horrifying. And it's not it, it, it doesn't come down to just him because, of course, he's saying things and then immediately contradicting himself the next day and no one cares because he said it in the first place and there are people who agree with it and there are people who secretly always agreed with it and now they feel like they can say it out loud and the only as i say the only good thing about it is now we can put faces to names and we know who they are and it is yeah that's the thing i always felt that trump gained popularity because he read the crowd really well and he's always he been just able says to what do people that. want to hear yeah, I mean, that's he's it. constantly he he's, he's openly he's been openly caught lying under oath, and that's not enough for people to say, "Oh, this guy's a liar." He's uh, whenever he does a speech and someone fact checks the speech, and it's like eighty percent of it was incorrect. People don't care. A lot of people don't care. They hear what they say, what he says, they take it at face value, and they deep down agree with it and want it to be true. So they just don't care that it's a lie. And it's this is to me a problem that I've been seeing for I've seen it from the view of the media for over 20 years 20 maybe even before I even got into this business that the I don't I don't know what the right word is for it but there are people who really do live like that they have always lived some people live with the blinders on and they will you know figuratively walking about with their fingers in their ears going la 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 I'm not listening to you I'm listening to what I want to hear and I'm afraid that now that that's – it's public for them, which makes them look a fool, but at the same time, they, they dig their heels in more deeply, again, with the fear of change. I am hopeful that this – that the butting of heads finally one – end, one end is going to collapse, and I think it's going to be them. It's just the question of how long is it going to take is, is the big concern. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think that we are at a tipping point in our nation. Um, we're becoming more and more divided. We're becoming more and more separate instead of coming closer together. And instead of people trying to move more to the middle to try to get along, people are blatantly going further to the right and left to try to solidify their base. And um, past presidents and past presidential uh uh, people who are running really did attempt to go more to the middle and not talk on divisive topics as much because they wanted to speak to as broad of an audience as possible. And people now are just trying to solidify the incredible vocal minority. And sometimes it feels like it's a majority because the minority is louder. Um, you know, these groups of people committing hate crimes and committing um, horrendous things to people and saying horrendous things are a minority. They truly are a minority. And when you look at the numbers, it is a minority. But it feels 
so much bigger because they are so much louder. And what we need to do is have the people who don't agree with them be just as loud and just as vocal and be just as irate about what's going on. And I didn't mean to turn this into a political thing at all. Um, I didn't mean to bring up the reproductive rights and the health care and Trump and all this. But the truth is, is it's all intertwined. Um, That's right. You know, when we, it absolutely is. When you look at, what was that kid, Brock Turner? He got six yep. months in jail for literally there were eyewitnesses seeing him committing the rape, and yet he only got six months. And what did people say about him? People talked about, instead of talking about his horrific crime, people would say, oh, well, he's a really great athlete. He has his whole life ahead of him. Well, so did she. She had yeah. her whole life ahead of her, and now she's going to be dealing with the result of this and the after effects of being raped for the rest of her life. And people don't That's not what people are reporting on. They're not talking about the psychological effects of rape and how that affects people and and affects their relationships and their ability to form trusted relationships for the rest of their lives. They're not talking about that. They're talking about this kid who had a great future ahead of him but made a mistake. That's not a mistake. It's a conscious decision that he made to take advantage of a young woman who was unconscious, who was drunk, who wanted to go home. And taking advantage of her, physically abusing her, ruined her life, and then had to be publicly on trial and publicly um, picked apart by news media and people and Brock's family. And he got a token sentence. He got a token punishment and will be able to live the rest of his life perfectly fine. Well, he served only three months of that sentence, and he was released. And the thing is, is, the only thing is that he is going he will now that on the other side of it the whole world knows who he is and the he's going to have to go through life he can't you know unless he massively changes his appearance he's going to go through life being known as that person i think it but will with the 24 hour him. news cycle i feel like even though it will affect him somewhat i feel like it's already blown over people aren't talking about it anymore and it was relatively recent and the truth is, is he could change his last name or change his name entirely and move through the rest of his life almost as if it didn't happen. Hmm. Well, we're going to have to see what happens with a lot of these people. And that's something that is going to – I do believe, though, that the change is going to very slowly – change is always slow, but it is inevitable. And I do think, sure. as you have said, the more that people talk about issues such as sexual abuse – the more there is going to be sensitivity to it. And that is something that You Are Not Alone has definitely done and is going to do. And that's the purpose of having you. you on this show is to talk about that and to bring that forward. Yeah. In the time we have left, Jessica, I, I do not wish to change the subject abruptly, but one of the no, things that it. I always ask about is with regard to the power of this book, there is what is behind it, and that is you. Tell us a little about your upbringing and uh, were you now you say you're in Brooklyn. Were you born in Brooklyn or, or where did you come from? Let's hear about no, that. not at all. In fact, um, actually, last month was my nine year anniversary of moving to New York. No, um, I was actually so I'm 33. I just turned 33 last week. Um, I was born and raised in Florida. I grew up in Florida, uh, just outside of Tampa Bay. And I went to college at the University of Florida. I got a degree in anthropology um forever ago and um (laughs) and i worked actually i graduated when i was 20 years old i was pretty young um and i got a job right out of college working at a small publishing firm in sales um 
I actually had applied for a role in HR and I went in and I was waiting in the lobby for my interview. And um, funny enough, I ended up running into someone I kind of knew, I kind of had known a little bit through mutual friends and we were chatting and the sales manager came out and told us to get back to work. And I kind of was very, I was a little bit snarky and I was like, oh, well, I don't work here. And he and I ended up having a conversation. And by the time the interviewer came out about 10 minutes later, the sales manager told her, I want her on my team. And so I started working in sales and I worked there for almost three years. And then I decided I wanted to move to New York. I'd always wanted to live in New York. Um, I'm from a smaller town, very suburban, and I'd always wanted to live in New York City. And I wanted to do it sooner, but of course the recession of 2008 made it impossible to find a job and I didn't want to give up the security of a job to be Uh, to move to a large city where I wasn't able to find something. So I waited a couple of years, and in 2010, I was able to get a job in New York, also in sales, um, from Florida. I flew up for interviews. I got hired, and I moved up to New York. And then uh, I moved to Brooklyn and kind of just rambled around looking for apartments on Craigslist for a little bit. And um, actually, about six months after moving here, I, I met my now husband, so that was awesome. And then, um, and I stayed in sales. It was what I was good at. It was the only thing I really had experience in because throughout college, I was a waitress and I worked at a hotel uh, doing front desk and marketing. So I was a waitress uh, the entire time I was in high school and college. So uh, sales was the only thing I really had experience in. Um, And I just kept finding better corporate business development and sales jobs. And so all of a sudden, um, I was 30 years old. I'd been in corporate sales and business development for 10 years. I was a business development uh, manager at a recruiting firm here in New York, and I was good at it, and it was lucrative. And the thing is, I turned 30, and I realized that my, my fear had come true. I was 10 years deep into a career that I was good at, but I wasn't truly fulfilled by. I was good mm-hmm. at, and I enjoyed it for the most part, but I wasn't like personally fulfilled. And I'd been writing my whole life. I won a poetry contest in the fifth grade. I have been blogging online since the days of live journal in MySpace. Um, I had an active live journal for many years. It's probably still out there somewhere. Um, I actually had a, a blog spot from like 2011 that I was actively writing in uh, all the time, uh, writing articles, writing recipes, writing funny jokes, um, treating it not just as a diary, but as a place to write my songs, a place to write my thoughts and feelings and articles that I thought were interesting. Um, And I kind of just, I think I had this thought in my head that if I were funny enough on my blog, I would just get discovered. Uh, Somebody would find me and think I was a great writer and want me to write. And of course, that's not how it really works most of the time. Um, So in... Yeah. And so at the end of 2016, in October of 2016, I was 30 years old and I kind of woke up one day and realized like, it's been 10 years. I want to try to be a writer. I'm going to just try. And Mm -hmm. I had started uh, being a contributing writer to Huffington Post and a couple other places like Lifehack and had gotten a little bit more exposure that way um, and been published on sites that were not just my own site. So what I did was I literally woke up one day and was like, I'm going to try to get a couple of clients. And if I can get a few clients, then maybe I can get a few more. Mm -hmm. And 
I, I just used my sales experience. I went out um, on Reddit and Instagram and Craigslist and job ads, and I looked for people who needed writers. And I advertised myself, and I responded to ads, and I reached out to people directly because that's my specialty. And within a week, I'd gotten four clients. So I had one that needed help with marketing emails, one that wanted me to do some website copy, one that wanted me to um, edit a white paper that they'd written, things like that. And, mm-hmm. and I was completely honest with them. Like, listen, I'm doing this on the side. I am, you know, I'm new to being a professional writer, but here are some of my writing samples from places I've written. Here's my blog. Here's my uh, Huffington Post articles, things like that. And, um, and people hired me. And at first it was all kind of, I was just pulling numbers out of thin air and I was trying to research what people charge as writers and I was way undercharging and I'm sure that's why people said (laughs) yes. Um, And I learned very quickly. I doubled my prices. I figured out what was reasonable. I I learned how to estimate um, how long something would take me and those clients referred me to other clients and I kept prospecting. And in November of 2016, I kind of figured, well, just in case this becomes something, um, I want to make sure I'm protected. So I filed as an LLC in the state of New York, which is ridiculous. New York is crazy expensive to become an LLC. They require you to publish in newspapers for six weeks. It's like $1,000. Um, wow. it's, it's ridiculous. But of course, it's a business expense. And I was just working from my couch. I would go to work every day uh, and work my 8.30 to 6, and I'd come home and eat a quick dinner and say hello to my husband and then work until midnight and go to bed and do it all again the next day. And yeah. And so in December of that year, my husband and I had, you know, we sat down and we talked about budgeting and we had a real conversation about it. And we decided that if I could make half of my current full-time salary just from writing clients, then I would quit my job and try to do it full-time and just try because it couldn't mm-hmm. hurt to try. I had a career. I could always go back to sales if I needed to. I, I yep. had skills, but I wanted to give it a shot. And I conservatively said, well, okay, it'll probably take me six to 12 months to get to that point. And by the end of January, uh, 90 days after getting my first client, I was making more than half my salary. And I put in my notice and I quit my job. And it was uh, the single most stressful and terrifying and exciting thing I've ever done in my entire life. And it was amazing. Um, there has been down months. Now, in the, in the last two and a half years since I've done this, uh, both last years I have made the same or more uh, that I was making, than I was making full-time at my regular job. And there have been down cycles and there have been up cycles. There's been ebbs and flows. Sales is a very cyclical thing. Um, And that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs get scared of, but it is very common. You go through times of making a ton of money one month and then the next month, a couple of your clients, you know, the project ends or the client goes away and now you have to suddenly market yourself. And it's interesting because I learned that most writers um, I've met a lot of writers and editors now um, from all over the U.S., and it's been really, really cool to expand my network. But I've learned that a lot of them uh, either don't like marketing or are afraid of it or don't know how to sell themselves very well. Right. And so I've gotten a lot of really amazing responses to the fact that I am good at sales, and it is something that I've been trained in. And I've actually ended up working with other writers and editors and helping them come up with a marketing plan and showing them that sales can be very easy, but it's something you have to do consistently. 
All right, Jessica, then where can people find you? And um, if they're interested in uh, some of these different elements that uh, I think definitely are great services to writers, where, where can they find you? Oh, absolutely. So I do writing, editing, and book coaching. I help people who want to write a nonfiction book. I can teach them how to break down the process and do it. I also do writing of all kinds. I blog for companies. I ghostwrite books. I edit manuscripts. Um, really, it's in anything and everything. I love the versatility of being able to work for myself. So uh, my main spot that people can find me at two places. My blog is medium.com slash at Jessica Schwartz. Um, there's several thousand people there who apparently think I'm pretty all right which is awesome and something I never expected. And then there is my website, which is just jessicaschwartz.com. Of course, my name, Jessica, has a Y in it, so it kind of throws people off sometimes. Um, but realistically, like I, one of my biggest messages is I, I have two main messages in, in my writing that I think are really important, and that is that you have to talk about the tough stuff. You have to talk about the personal stuff. That's what makes you who you are, um, and it's what makes people want your stuff. And then you have the um, situation where I also believe that writing should be fun and should be exciting and something that, and you should do what you love to do. And I want people to see that they can, they don't have to find a niche. Um, you know, you can be a generalist and have fun with it. Um, it doesn't have to be full-time. It doesn't have to be part-time. It can be a side thing. It can be just fun and freelance and do whatever you want. But it took me until I was 30 and 10 years into a career to switch to doing something that makes me so happy to get up every morning and do my job. And I hope that people can do that for themselves. And the thing is, is that Sunbury Press has been an incredible boon to me. You know, I self-published my first book and I self-published You Are Not Alone. And so mm -hmm. many people think that self-publishing is the end of the line, that once you self-publish, you've given up the chance to be a traditionally published writer, and that's not true. You know, Sunbury swept in. I went out and I did the legwork and I researched publishers and I emailed and called publishers and I found Sunbury Press. And Sunbury Press thought that You Are Not Alone was an important book and something that needed to be said, and they took it on. And it's so important to me for to, to tell other authors that you can do it. You know, you don't have to be published by one of the big five to be successful. You don't have to uh, be self-published and assume that's the end of the line for you, that there is so many opportunities out there. And for me, working with Sunbury Press has been freaking awesome is what it's been. Um, well, I've gotten this opportunity <laughs> that has been incredible. All right. Well, I am, and I and I second that emotion the whole way, Jessica. We're going to have to wrap it up here, Jessica. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. This was wonderful, and I really appreciate your time. All right. My guest has been Jessica Schwartz, author of the book "You Are Not Alone," and I'm Tori Gates, your host of the Brown Posey Press Show. Look for my book. Searching for Roy Buchanan on the Brown Posey label, as well as the releases A Moment in the Sun and Live from the Cafe. This is the Book Speak Network. <laughs>